Dedicated to the survival of American democracy in an increasingly dangerous world, this is Secure Freedom Radio with Frank Gaffney, acted as Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Policy under President Ronald Reagan, founder of the Center for Security Policy in Washington, D.C., the go-to man for defense and foreign policy issues, joined by the greatest minds in the security policy business, the special forces in the war of ideas at Secure Freedom Radio. Radio with Frank Welcome to Secure Freedom Radio. This is Frank Gaffney, your host and guide for what I think of as an intelligence briefing on the war for the free world. That war has taken a new turn in the past days with the revelation that back in August, the Chinese Communist Party successfully tested the capability to launch into orbit a hypersonic vehicle that is believed to be capable of carrying a nuclear weapon any place on Earth in very short order and in ways that can both minimize the chance of detection and any possible intercept. In other words, the perfect sneak attack weapon and it is now apparently entering the Chinese arsenal, a potentially mortal threat to the United States. A man who has been reflecting on this particular development and what's going on in space, both at the hands of the Chinese and others more generally, is our first guest. His name is Michael Listner. He is an attorney by training, but he runs a terrific outfit, the Space Law and Policy Solutions think tank up in New Hampshire. You can follow his work at spacelawsolutions.com, where I recently came across a very insightful report about what the Chinese have just done and its implications. He publishes a for subscription newsletter a briefing letter, he calls it, entitled The Preci, P-R-E-C-I-S. You can find out more about it there at spacelawsolutions.com. I'm delighted to have Michael Listener with us for the first time. Thank you for the work you do, Michael, and for sharing it with us today. Well, thank you for having me this morning, Frank. I'm really pleased to do so because I have been in this business for a long time and remember, um, not that I was on duty then, but do remember the fractional orbital ballistic system that the Soviet Union fielded for a time. Um, this was of great concern for similar reasons. Um, give us a little bit of that background, if you would. Uh, what did the Soviets do? Uh, how did the United States respond to it? And what are the implications if the Chinese have now not only replicated that capability, but perhaps uh, greatly enhanced it with this hypersonic technology? Well, the, the idea behind fractional orbital bombardment system, or FOBs, we call it FOBs for short, is it basically puts a new twist on delivering a nuclear, uh, a nuclear weapon or a nuclear payload to, uh, a, to, a, or to a rival country. Uh, ICBMs basically, when they, when, the, when they launch a nuclear weapon, they launch it in, in what we call a ballistic curve, where it maybe just stays in space for a little bit and then comes down on a ballistic trajectory. What the fractional orbital bombardment system does, it launches a it launches a warhead almost in the same way they would launch, say, a spacecraft or a satellite. It launches it actually into an orbit. Now, the difference between fra between fractional orbital bombardment and a natural satellite is 
it, once the warhead is in that orbit, it doesn't stay there for a complete orbit. But what it does, when it gets over to the point where it's going over a territory or its target, it fires a, an engine to break, it, break itself out of orbit and then falls down onto its target. Now, the idea behind this is, you know, with, with, with uh, conventional ICBM RVs, you have, a, you have a, an RV track that's, that's actually predictable. Now, the old Soviet system basically used a warhead that probably had limited maneuvering capability. However, what, what the Chinese have done is they've actually married the idea of fractal orbit bombardment with a maneuverable hypersonic vehicle. So back in, you know, back during the, during the Johnson era uh, administration, when this FOBs system was being tested and actually deployed by the Soviets, there was a lot of consternation about it, you know, because this, the idea was, you know, we wouldn't be, we wouldn't be able to detect it. Uh, this could actually incite what we call nuclear pinning um, uh, of our forces on on land, in particular ICBM fields and bomber bases. Um, it could be it could have been used for what we call preemption, but and there was a lot of concern about it. Uh, and, but the big thing that came up was, you know, what is this legal? Now, a few months before this, um, for, for the Soviets tested the system, uh, before the system was actually detected and and, and you know, analyzed, we entered into this agreement called the Outer Space Treaty. And that, that happened in January of 1967. And, and one of the things in this Outer Space Treaty is said that, you know, you cannot, you cannot orbit or place nuclear weapons in orbit. So the big question was, did this violate the Outer Space Treaty? And then really, and looking at some of the documents from the Johnson, from the Johnson administration era, there was, there was really a big uh, argument about this among some of the agencies, like the Department of Defense, uh, NASA, even the State Department, saying, "Oh my, no, this is actually a violation. They violated the Outer Space Treaty right out of the gate. I mean, just months before uh, this, you know, this this after signing this treaty with the U.S." So the Johnson administration stepped stepped back and looked at it, and, and Robert McNamara, in particular, stepped up and said, "No, it doesn't violate the Outer Space. It doesn't violate this provision of the Outer Space Treaty," which caused a lot of consternation from the other departments, DOD, NASA, State Department. But ultimately, the Johnson administration took the position that, no, it doesn't violate it doesn't violate the United States Treaty. That was that was the position, the policy position that they took. So I find it very interesting now that I'm, that I'm seeing some, you know, I'm, I'm seeing some comments from people blurting out, "Well, this this type this, this weapon divide, you know, developed by the Chinese and tested by the Chinese. Oh my God, this is fractal orbital bombardment system. This is technical. This is a, this is illegal under the United States Treaty because of Article Four. Um, and my my response is, well, wait a minute, you know, let's step back and take a look at it, this because really it. The question is: It may not be. It may not be illegal. In fact, might be consistent with uh, U.S. policy going back to the Johnson administration. So we don't have the fig leaf of international law to protect us against this threat. Do we have anything else in the inventory at the moment that can contend with the possibility that we would not only have this very fast flying and maneuvering? vehicle delivering a nuclear payload to targets inside the United States, and maybe they're uh, bomber bases, maybe they're command and control facilities, maybe they're ICBM fields, more likely they're, they're uh, uh, or submarine bases, it's some combination of those things. Or maybe it's just an electromagnetic pulse um, laydown, which would be catastrophic for the country, uh, not just our military, but the country as well. Is there something that can protect us um, on hand at the moment uh, in the event that this kind of strike is launched by the Chinese Communist Party? Well, there's nothing that's publicly in in the know. And anything like that would probably be classified in some, you know, some 
special access program uh, that, you know, you really have to have a lot of clearance and a lot of people saying, okay, you can look at it and see what it is. So there's nothing that's publicly, uh, no capability that's publicly known that would be able to defeat this. Now, going, you know, going back to the, uh, Going back to the to the Johnson era, and you know they're, they're basically coming out and saying, "Well, we have no legal recourse." On the other hand, we, we, we what we're going to do is we're going to in, install a countermeasure. And what they did was they created they they basically developed and deployed the world's first operational anti-satellite weapon, and that was called Program 437. Now, what Program 437 did was it based uh, Thor missile Thor missiles with nuclear warheads on Johnston Island. And the idea was when the, when these fractional if these fractional orbital bombardment systems were launched, they would you know we would get the satellite the Thor missiles would launch, the nuclear warheads would come within close proximity, detonate, and the EMP and the neutron flux would basically fry out the guidance systems of of the uh, on on the fobs, thus defeating it. So that system remained at, that remained system active on and off for uh, probably close to a decade before it was finally shut down. And of course, there were a lot of issues with it. I mean, the response to this and stuff like that. But the idea was the defense wasn't a, wasn't a conventional ABM system, which was also being con- also being developed and in some respects deployed at that time using nuclear warheads. But the the, the result was basically, you know what, we're going to have to use an anti-satellite weapon in order to defeat this fractional or bombardment. So the question is, is the U.S. Does, you know does the U.S. have an operational ASAC capability that could potentially you know defeat or at least deter this type of uh, uh, capability from the Chinese, or does or do we have the policy? Um, how can you say? Do do we have the impetus? Do we have the ability to make a decision? Say, you know what? We have to bite the bullet, and we have to create a dedicated ASAT system in order to defeat this because we have no other. Our conventional ABM systems just won't cut it. This raises a question that uh, I've been wrestling with for decades, uh, really going back to my time in the Reagan administration, namely the necessity for the United States to have effective missile defenses. Um, Anti-satellite systems are one thing, but if people will have the capability to launch perhaps thousands of warheads against us, um, the need for much more capability than a single or even a handful of anti-satellite technologies or capabilities, um, I think is... is, um, is something we have to address as a matter of national policy. And back in the Bush administration, the first Bush, George H.W. Bush administration, a colleague of mine, Ambassador Hank Cooper, uh, was running the then called SDI program, Strategic Defense Initiative program. And as you doubtless know, put together an actual workable plan for deploying in space what were then called brilliant pebbles. uh, platforms that could be put up in large numbers and provide a space-based missile defense. Um, it seems to me that the sensors and the missile interceptor technologies have obviously greatly improved since that time. Um, but even then, the costs of that kind of capability were very manageable. And the kinds of defensive uh, impediments to attacks, whether it's of a, uh, a more conventional type that the Russians now or the Chinese could engage in, let alone something like this, the hypersonic uh, variant, um, really 
demands that kind of space-based uh, sensor and interceptor capability. What are your thoughts about that? And um, do you have any insights into how far away we might be from having such a capability today if we chose to deploy it? Well, I think I think the technical the, the technical end of it is one one side altogether. And I'm not even going to go into that because one, I'm not, I'm not a technical person. I'm a legal and policy person. The, 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 but the big problem really is, is the legal and the policy uh, pro, uh, position on this. Now, the Russians and the uh, the Russian Federation and the People's Republic of China have been beating this idea of what we call quote space weapons to death for for, for several decades. Now, the idea behind the, the, they've introduced they introduced the treaty back in 2004 and then re then amended it back in I believe it was 2008 uh, or no 2014 called the PPWT and um, you can you can look that up on a search engine. I'm not going to go through. Uh, I I don't remember the full you know full. Uh, breaking out the full acronym there, but it's called the PPWT. But basically, it, the idea is it was supposed to be in, quote, space weapons. Now, weapons, in, you know, the Outer Space Treaty doesn't ban weapon, conventional weapons in outer space. It only bans the placement of nuclear weapons or nuclear devices in outer space. And that's, that's really kind of a nuance that we don't have time to talk about here, but understand that. Nuclear, put, putting, placing nuclear weapons in orbit or fixating them or stationing them in outer space, bad. Conventional weapons are okay, though. So the idea of a brilliant pebbles or an SDI type of uh, of uh, program are are actually you know okay. In fact, I think the most controversial part of the Reagan plan was called the X-ray laser system, which actually involved the detonation of a nuclear weapon in space. Really, I think that would have been okay too under the Outer Space Treaty. And I, I can't again, I can't go into detail here on, on this short period. But the idea is the Soviet Union and uh, well, actually, now now the Russian Federation and the PRC have basically been beating this idea of space weapons to death in the UN and talking. And it isn't about really, you know, peace in space. It's about missile defense right now because they don't because they know that you know placing space based uh, defense systems will definitely degrade their offensive forces, their ICBM forces. Potentially, it could potentially affect this this new you know hypersonic uh, capability, uh, but I think you'd have yeah, that defense system would have to be more of an ASAT nature in order to really deal with that. But that's you know that that's technical, and I'm, I, we don't have time to get into that. Well, so, we'll, we'll get think, Ambassador think, Cooper more, on more, to to discuss that on technical side. But but I think the point that you know so well as one of the few people, Michael Listener, I've encountered who are practically minded, sensible, let alone robust on space as a very important domain for this country, both militarily and uh, in terms of you know commercial activity, uh, civilian uh, experiments, and so on. This business of the Russians and the Chinese endlessly harping on how space is pristine and must be kept that way, and there must be weapons bans there, and so on, um, is... Well, to put a fine point on it, a complete fraud, because as you know, they are hard at building military capabilities, including something I wanted, before we let you go, touch on at least briefly, um, the whole Chinese space program is a military program. It may have some dual-use attributes, but it's fundamentally about military activity on the moon, in the cislunar space. Um, the Lagrangian points, the uh, low Earth orbit, it's all about 
dominating space as a military and strategic proposition, is it not? Yes, I agree. And I, I try to I get too hyperbolic when I say this and, you know, I don't, you know, and, and go on to a rant, but in, in, in a sense, that's exactly what it is. It's about, you know, basically, it's about basically impo- imposing their view of rule of law in, in order that from their perspective versus say what, you know, the U S and its allies would prefer to see. And, and really that, and really that, that the, the same, that basically the game, what they're doing in space or what they're starting to do in space is the same thing they've been doing in other domains. Like, well, the, you know, the nine dash line, in the South China sea, perfect example of it, you know, and, and really, I, and I think really a dry run for what they want to, what they may eventually try and do with space in, in you know, in, in orbit, possibly even, and more importantly on, on the moon itself. Uh, establishing that idea of you know this is ours and to to the exclusion of no other else, which is actually um, not what the outer space treaty is about all at all. Uh, and they and they acceded to that in 1983 and said, yeah, we agree with this you know free access idea. But in reality, my my opinion is it's about kind of you know ensconing outer space into their own sphere of influence and basically for their exclusive use and basically saying you know if you want to use it you can use it ours again i look at i look at the nine dash line in the south china sea as a prime example there you go exactly right we have to leave it at that for the moment um michael listener but this is a very important very timely um and very much needed conversation not just about the chinese hypersonic missile capability, but what we're going to have to do about it. I hope that you'll be a frequent visitor here at Secure Freedom Radio now that we've found you and um, the chance to pick your brains about um, both what the Chinese and Russians are up to and what we better be doing in space ourselves is uh, something I look forward to with great expectation. Thank you for your time today, sir. Come back to us again soon if you would. Next up, we'll speak with Sam Faddis about, well, the wrecking operation against our military and country, the hands of Joe Biden's administration. That and more straight ahead. 